six, if we can uh, transition into that mode. And uh, I do realize that some of you have been up a while, we have been studying a while, and you just end. <laughs> and when that happens, it uh, tends to produce sleepiness. As far as I'm concerned, you just have to keep off the stairs, uh, do as Kyle says, not as he does. But as far as I'm concerned, if you get sleepy, figure out a place where you can stand and not block other people, and you can stand up. That's fine with me. And I realize sometimes that helps. Because <laughs> I sometimes get in those positions myself when I'm teaching. So uh, I can only imagine what it would be like listening. Isaiah chapter 6 is the start of a new section, really. It's Isaiah being commissioned. And I'm going to just pack this chapter onto the rest of this from 6 to 39 that I believe focuses on the issue of trusting the Lord in the context of Isaiah's day. Now, the people in Isaiah's day faced various threats. In 7 through 12, they face a threat, Judah does, from a coalition of forces, Israel and Aram, also called Syria. And in that situation, there was a great temptation for them to call on the Assyrians to join them in the fight and to basically attack Syria and Israel from the opposite direction. Isaiah told Ahaz, trust in the Lord. He didn't. He went to Assyria. And uh, so 7 through 12 deal with that whole situation. And then 13 to 27 is a section mostly dealing with God's judgment of various nations. But I think the real focus of that section is on the fact that the Lord's in charge don't trust in the nations, trust in God. We're going to see that when we go through that section. Then 28 to 35, I believe is in the historical context of another later threat that Judah has. Guess from whom? The Assyrians, the ones they made the pact with, defend off Aram and Israel. Now they become the new menace and the temptation is to turn to Egypt, make an alliance with Egypt to ward off the Assyrians and that's chapters 28 to 35. Then chapters 36 to 39 is sort of a historical narrative that more or less gives some of the historical facts behind some of these things and and prepares us for chapters 40 to 66, which is the third section of the book, the way I section this off. It is entirely possible to section this off in other ways. But that's the way I look at this. So, 6 is the commission, 7 through 12, the threat from Aram and Israel, and the uh, alliance with Assyria. 13 to 27, judgments against the nations. 28 to 35, the threat from Assyria and the temptation to ally with Egypt. And then 36 to 39, the historical narrative. That's how I want to break down this section. Uh, Who knows what we'll get to. Um, My goal is 33. I'm ready through 39. And hey, if we go farther than that, that would be wonderful. But I don't think that will happen. So... Uh, Chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. 
each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook in the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Okay. So, uh, here is sort of the defining vision for Isaiah. It's in the year of King Isaiah's death. It's interesting how Bible writers specifically date events uh, by the uh, historical world around them. There's really no parallel to that much in other religions. It is something very uh, uh, pretty uh, special to the Bible. This is set in a specific historical context. In the year of King Isaiah's death, which would have been a tragic year, but in that year, Isaiah saw something that we all need to see in the year of tragedy. What did he see? He saw the Lord sitting on his throne. I assume Isaiah had a throne, but the true throne that rules the world is the Lord's. That's what we need to see in any crisis. We need to see the Lord on his throne and the difference that that makes to us. And uh, when he saw the Lord, wow, how was this? What, what was the Lord like? Lofty and exalted. He was high and lifted up. Uh, he was great. Um, what else did he see? He saw the Lord, but what, else, what other features did he see in this vision of the Lord's throne? Yeah, what was it doing? Filled the temple. That was quite a robe. <laughs> Filled the temple. What else did he see? Seraphim. Seraphim. I, that's something more than the name of a volleyball team, I think. Um, what what are seraphim? Evidently, uh, best I can tell, I don't know a lot of details about angels, but the best I can tell, there are different um, specializations of angels, or perhaps different types of angels. And I don't know about how to look at all of those, but these seraphim, the I am on the end, would be pluralizing it. For whatever reason, we don't do seraphs, we do seraphim. But the singular would be seraph. And uh, the word itself mean, means burning ones, uh, or fiery ones, uh, perhaps indicating that they were blazing fire, I don't know. Um, what do you know about these seraphim? In their six wings. What do they do with those wings? <laughs> and fly. Yes. Why would they cover their, their face and their feet? I think so, in the presence of God. You know, he's too holy to look upon. Uh, and and so it's, it's sort of a modesty issue for them, a humility issue. And of course, with the flying, they can, uh, uh, it's a mode of transportation. What are they saying? Yes, praising the Lord for His holiness. Holy, holy, holy. As I understand it, in Hebrew, there was no comparative or superlative. In other words, you couldn't say more holy, most holy. You said holy, holy, or holy, holy, holy. To triple a word is to say, wow, the very most holy. 
Now isn't it interesting that these beings that are the closest to the Lord describe Him as holy and glorious? I don't know, but my guess is the uh, friends closest to President Bush have less reverence for him than, um, you know, the common man. It's probably true, I don't know, we probably don't respect Bush all that much, but imagine somebody we do respect, uh, you know, these days, you know, a sports figure, <laughs> movie star, whatever. But even those guys, probably those closest to them, <clears throat> don't look up to him that much. Don't you imagine? You know, their, their best friends probably don't think that they're really that great or that different or whatever. <coughs> That's the way that usually is. I mean, you know, when you get close to them, then you realize, well, you know, yeah, they did that well, but I mean, they're not that much different than I am. I mean, they have their days. You know, but, but those closest to God see Him as infinitely holy and full of glory. That's impressive to me. This defining vision, I believe, is the reason for Isaiah having a great habit of uh, calling the Lord the Holy One of Israel. Of course he was. That's the way Isaiah saw it. When he had that vision, it impressed upon his mind, he is the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah never forgot that. That's who God is to Isaiah. And uh, then he sees the, uh, the foundation of the thresholds of the temple trembling and the temple filling up with smoke. Uh, wow, this is really an impressive thing. Can you imagine seeing this? And, and wow, what would you do if you saw this? I mean, wow. This would be, there's no word to describe what it would be like to see the Lord like this. Comments and questions on these four verses? Yes, Paul. Okay. Um, I thought, kind of a word study question for you here. I thought that uh, cherubim and cherub were meant for animals. So is there, is there really a difference between a seraphim and a, between a seraphim and a cherub? You thought that in that what? Flying one? Flying one. Flying one. So is there I don't a think that's true, but anybody know, Kyle, do you know what cherubim means? I don't think it means anything. Okay. It's a, it's a name of the name. <laughs> okay. It, it, it's not a verb like seraph is. Yes, it does mean something. Okay. Like a less specific term. Yeah, I don't know. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that definitive uh, discussion. <laughs> um, well, you know, we are out of our element when we talk very much about angels, but the, there are cherubim in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 1 and 10, maybe in Revelation, but the word cherub, cherubim is used in Ezekiel for those beings. My guess is they're not quite the same, but they look pretty similar. So, I don't know. But yeah, I think cherubim perhaps doesn't mean anything. I don't know. Um, other thoughts through four? Is there any the whole earth is focused like everything like the universe or something bigger? Well, I mean, probably is, but you know, Isaiah's on the earth, so. Right, but yeah, I was thinking that that was cool that, I know, yes. I mean, there is a whole universe, God, his glory is Pretty much, God fills everything, and the train of his robe fills the temple, and the earth is full of his glory and the temple's filled with smoke and you know the Lord fills things up I mean I think that is kind of a theme here he's, he's great 
you know, wow, expansive. Other thoughts? Isaiah's reaction, five to seven. <laughs> then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Isn't that interesting? Isaiah's first reaction is what? Uh-oh. <laughs> yes. <coughs> Why? He's seen the Lord. So? A lot. Uh, a lot of times whenever in the Old Testament, uh, people would think that they saw God with that man dead kind of yeah, it's really overwhelming in a way, and, and, you know, overpowering for him, I think. Um, because he felt so wicked. He saw his sins. You see the holiness and the purity of God. And you just immediately think about how unholy and impure you are. You know, I mean, I don't know, this is probably not a good example, but what's that woman that does all that stuff on TV? Martha Stewart. You know, what, what would women think if Martha Stewart walked into their house? <laughs> yeah. Better uh, dust. Well, okay. Um, you guys like sports. I mean, what sport do you like? Basketball? Indiana likes basketball. Uh, what, what, you know, you think you're okay at basketball? Yeah. Yeah, and what would you... <laughs> I mean, you know, you got to believe in yourself. Uh, but uh, what, would, what would you think if Michael Jordan walked up watching you play? You know, would that kind of change your, your feelings? I mean, a few of you guys think you're good at driving cars, but what if, you know, I don't know, Tony Stewart or somebody came along uh, and watched you drive? I mean, it's kind of like, yeah, you feel okay until until the expert. <laughs> and then you're like, oh my, oh my, I should have done this, oh, I didn't do that. And, wow, if you ever got in the presence of God, uh, I, I, really, I mean, it's kind of what we see. I mean, Ezekiel fell flat on his face. Daniel fell, you know, several times. John fell, you know. I mean, you just, you just feel so inadequate. And, and, and I think so sinful. Remember what Peter said to Jesus when he had that tremendous catch of fish in Luke 5? You know, and it dawned on him, wow, Jesus really is. You know, he said, depart from me, I'm a sinful man, O oh Lord. I mean, you just feel so much how, wow, I'm in the presence of a holy, holy, holy one, and I am not. And especially he thinks about what kind of sins? Lips. Yes. Sins of the tongue are fundamental in general. Very appropriate to this context of praising God and his prophetic mission that he's going to be using his tongue. Um, but think about this one. Because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. I don't know what Isaiah was like before this. But God often picks out people who are suited for the task. My guess is Isaiah was a, was a 
better guy than the people around him. That'd be my guess before this. But he says the same thing. You know, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And that strikes me a little bit. That, you know, you ever get to feeling like, you know, yeah, I've sinned some, but you know, my the people around me, they're, they're pretty bad. You know, mine aren't too bad. Theirs are really bad. I suspect if you ever got in the presence of God, it would kind of blur those distinctions. I mean, in the presence of God, we're all pretty much in the same boat. Think about it this way. If I can illustrate this, if you can follow my train of thought. Um, on top of, you're, you're, one guy's on the top of Mount Everest, and the other guy's in Death Valley. Which guy's closer to the moon? Uh, yeah. Very much closer? <laughs> Whoa, it's a long ways up to that moon. Yeah, it probably doesn't make much difference. <laughs> but it's close. You know, one person is sort of like you are. And another person does things worse than you do. Which one's closer to the holiness of God? You are. Make much difference when you look at the holiness of God. It's like, whoa. <laughs> that distinction is really minimal. I do believe seeing the greatness and purity and holiness of God humbles us. And helps us see ourselves as very much like all these wicked people we look down on so much. We're just as undone as they are. Oh yeah, we're a little closer. <laughs> but it's negligible. And, and, and so that just struck me. You know... I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. Four of my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So what happens here? Yes, by? By? A coal. A burning coal from the altar that? One of the burning ones takes. That's appropriate. Takes a live coal and does what with it? touches his mouth with it and uh, touches his lips and purges his sin. Isn't that interesting? It seems to me like the fact that this live coal was taken from the altar symbolizes the purification that comes from sacrifice. You take the coal from the sacrifice and you apply it to Isaiah's lips purifying, purging his lips of the sinful speech. Purifying his mouth. Sacrifice is necessary for purification. Comments and questions? Follow that idea? Anything through seven? Same. I'm still not quite clear on what it means by the speech. Does it mean not praising God enough? Does it mean lying? What does it mean by that? Probably all of the above and more. I think so. Yeah. Wow. And I mean, aren't there a lot? You ever wish, you know, just kind of eliminate your mouth and it would really cut down on the, you know, frequency of sin? So many sins, if they're not all mouth, are part mouth. You really think about it. I mean, there's so many things. 
good. I mean, that's probably. I mean, it's probably what Isaiah first thought about. You know, when he thought of his sins, he immediately thought of all the lies he told, and language he'd used, lashing out in anger and impatience, and you know, on and on. Sarah. Was this more like a vision or more like an event? It seems like it's more like an event. So there, I mean, in the sense of it literally happening, and if there had been anybody there, they could have seen it kind of? It's presented that way. Is there any significance to the fact that it's a flaming angel that's bringing him a burning coal? I think so. I think that's appropriate. Who better to bring a burning coal? Anything else? Yeah, we talked about uh, chapter four, just about the uh, spirit of fire that was cleansing people. It's kind of the same idea, purging sin through fire and. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Yeah, Ryan. And then West. Um, I'm just going to say that if people like Isaiah and Daniel and Ezekiel and John and all these spiritual giants consider their sin so serious, then we have no right to minimize our own sin. Isn't that the truth? Wow. That's right. Wes? It seems like um, like you think of for God for Moses, for God for Moses, that you can't see all my glory. Yeah, who knows? I mean, it reminds me of the last verse of Ezekiel 1, where such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. <laughs> so, even what he saw was two or three uh, stages removed from really seeing the Lord. I'm assuming that even this was not totally that. I don't know. Matt? Uh, to kind of track on a, a reference in John 12, it seems that this is Jesus that he's saying on the throne, which is, is really interesting to kind of see. Here's the glory of the one who who came and was born and married. Yes. I agree with you. I think John 12 is a reference to this. Maybe in the sense that when he sees God on the throne, he's not seeing Father alone. He's seeing God on the throne. I think so often in the Old Testament, when we see God, we're not meant to see only the Father. Verse 8 shows us. Yes, good point. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so that would confirm that idea. Shane. And it's still, I mean, if this isn't, this still isn't the total splendor and total glory of God, and look at these guys' reactions when they see this. So imagine what, how they would have reacted if this would have been the total splendor. Of course they would have died, but you know what I mean. This isn't, this isn't even a hint of God's splendor. Other comments? Eight to thirteen. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Who shall I send? Who will go for us? 
Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go, and tell this people, Keep on listening, but do not proceed. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, and their eyes dim. Let they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears. Understand with their hearts, and repent, and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, Until cities are devastated, and without inhabitants. Houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it, and it will be it will it will again be subject to burning, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. So the Lord says, "Whom shall I send, and who will go for us?" Confirming the plurality here of the Godhead. But he asked for a volunteer. And? Who? Isaiah. Now, there's some interesting things about that. First of all, isn't this the right thing? After forgiveness, service. Isaiah's been purified. Now he can volunteer. And duh, we're not purified. We're not forgiven to enjoy forgiveness. We're forgiven to serve God. But I'm also impressed with Isaiah's eagerness to volunteer before he knows what. Yeah, like what it is and where it is and how long it's going to last and how difficult it's going to be and all that. You know, he doesn't know where he's going or what he's going to do, but he says, here I am, send me. We need more of that spirit. More of that willingness. Lord, I don't care what it is, where it is, how long it is, or how hard it is, if you need me, I'll go. We're like, well, uh, yeah, but now, you know, (laughs) I can't go there, and I can't go that long, and I can't really do that, and, you know, what about, you know, my career, and what about, you know, my friends, and what about, you know, and so forth and so on. Uh, Isaiah was willing. I really appreciate that in him. And if he'd only known the mission. Whoa. This is really weird. What is Isaiah supposed to go and do? Plug their ears. Yeah. Go and... Go and... Keep the people from listening or seeing or responding. Does that seem like the right kind of mission for God to send somebody on? No. <laughs> Not exactly. What about that? How are you supposed to do that anyway? Preach the truth. People that don't want to hear it will plug their ears and stop their eyes and scream till you go away. And that's exactly right. Think about that. Israel has gotten to the point where preaching the truth to them drives them farther away. They become more hardened. They become more defensive. They become more resentful. And so, as Isaiah preaches the truth about the Holy One of Israel, what it's really doing is, it's turning the people off. It's causing them to stop up their ears, close their eyes, and harden their hearts. 
that is a very powerful lesson or many lessons for us have you ever seen somebody like that where if you tell them one more time what God says it's kind of going to be the point of no return they'll never come back they'll never open their Bible again they'll never be willing to listen to another word from the Lord anymore Too often we glamorize preaching. Isn't it great to have all these people hanging on every word and bringing these multitudes to the Lord and having this great success and building up this wonderfully fine church? That's not what Isaiah found in his work of preaching the gospel. Isaiah found failure. And he asked, Lord, how long? Well, how long was he supposed to do this? Yeah. Till the whole nation is like a field of burned out stumps. <laughs> till they're all, all taken away in captivity. Until, they, until there's nothing left to preach to. How would you feel about that mission? I believe I'd like a better field. (laughs) Well, I mean, I got a lot of questions about this. Like, if that's going to be the reaction, why preach? Well, why would God tell a man like Isaiah to preach to people like this? He's wasting his breath. That way when they're judged, you can say, I told you. You're right. God is glorified by the proclamation of his word, whether they listen or whether they don't. If you knew there was not a single soul in Indiana or your state who would listen to the gospel more than already has, should you preach it anyway? Do we think we should? What do we say? Well, they won't listen. They won't bother. I, I don't. I don't think they'll. I don't think they'll respond. We would use the fact that we don't think they'll respond, which we don't even really know. But the fact that we don't think they'll respond, we use that as a reason not to preach. God told Isaiah, they absolutely will not respond positively. It'll just close their heart more than preaching. See, God looks at it the opposite of what we do. He wants his word to be preached regardless of what their response is. That that intrigues me a little bit. Um, Have you ever been in a situation like that? Where you really thought that yes, you could say what God's word says, but if you do you might very well just drive the person away. So what do you do in that situation? Well, you know, we probably ought to be careful. You know, we probably ought not to say certain things because, I mean, you know it'll probably drive them away. This must be very convicting to me. I'd have probably said the same thing. But it seems to me like this passage is saying, well, if God's got a message to be preached, 
it ought to be preached. Now, if it will drive them away, well, then that's what God wants done. I mean, His Word isn't just for converting people. His Word is for hardening people, too. That's, that's part of His job. That's part of what He wants done. If a person is like this, then He wants them hardened by the preaching of the Word. We think, well, if it's going to drive them away, don't preach it. It looks to me like this passage is saying just the opposite of that. Preach it. The effect's the effect. What do you think? Well, the supposition is that they are fine where they are, so as long as you don't drive them away and they stay where they are, then life's good. But that, there's no more truth to that than anything. Well, exactly, because if they've got the kind of heart that preaching of the truth would drive them away, well, they're certainly not with the Lord. Yeah. And we don't always know where they're being driven further away will not result in the end and then coming back. I mean, finally, you know, the the prodigal son had to be driven to uh, covet the food of pigs before he realized he needed to turn back. So... Yeah, you know, that's exactly right. I mean, (laughs) we are so limited in what we even know about what the results will be. But here, we do know because God knew, and God told Isaiah. And even when he knew it was going to be failure, and our way of looking at that, preach it. So, even if we knew, which we don't, preach it anyway. Think about it this way. And and this is also somewhat convicting. Um, We don't have the luxury of only preaching to receptive people. You know, of only finding the people who are the best prospects and talking to them. We need to sow the seed wherever it falls. And think about this. The response of the people is not an accurate barometer of determining the preacher's faithfulness to God. Isn't that true? Is it a sure bet that the preachers that preach for the churches that are growing the fastest are the preachers God is the happiest with? It may, but it might just be the opposite of that. <laughs> you know, there's growth that comes from God and there's growth that doesn't come from God. And in this case, it seems to me that Isaiah's failure to persuade the people was going to prove him to be a true prophet. Because this is exactly what he said was going to happen in this case. We've got to change this mentality that success means converting more people. Success means preaching the word faithfully and honoring God. It doesn't make any difference how many people are converted in terms of measuring whether we've honored God and been faithful to Him. If it did, Isaiah was a dismal failure, and so was Jeremiah and Ezekiel and a whole lot of other prophets that didn't seem to have very good response. For that matter, Jesus Christ Himself. But when we have the mentality that we are called to make sure our church grows and more and more people are converted and the gospel doesn't do the trick, we're tempted to substitute something else that will. 
That's the danger of that wrong mindset. We're just called to preach the message. It may convert or it may harden. But in Isaiah's case, he already knows. It's going to harden. All right, Shane. And I know I've, I've heard this on most things, funny, but yeah, I still get a chuckle out of, out of it every time. But uh, people say, you know, well, you know, if I tell them this, not only are they going to turn away, but they're not going to like me. And almost as if they're the whole point of the message. Almost as if it's God to give you know, them. We see Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and, like you said, most of all, Jesus, who did they care about themselves at all? They gave themselves up entirely, didn't care whether people, and Isaiah and Jeremiah both were hated among the people. Did they care what they, people thought of them? Well, no. Why should we? It's, this Everything isn't about us. If we have that mentality, we need to do you turn here, because it's not about us. Amen. Logan. There was a friend of mine in uh, Alabama camp that when we were in a devotion, was uh, used an illustration that he'd heard about. Uh, uh, there was a man who was a Christian. He lived next door to a man who wasn't a Christian. And he didn't evangelize to him because he didn't uh, want to uh, uh, hurt his uh, friendship with him because he knew it because he wasn't living right. Thought they wouldn't receive it. And then Judgment Day, while they're in line or waiting to be judged or whatever comes up to him and asks him why he didn't say anything and uh, when he tells him and when the Christian tells him that the same thing because he didn't want to help uh, didn't want to hurt the friendship what do you think that neighbor's going to say are you crazy yeah I suspect if we were in the position of the neighbor we would like for the man to risk the friendship other thoughts if we think that we'll save a friendship by not speaking to them, there's really no friendship there to save. You're right. J.D.? Uh, well, you said it before, but you know, sometimes when we speak the truth about something and we get a negative response, we feel like we've done something wrong, we instantly are, are asking ourselves, how, you know, what did I do wrong? And obviously, of course, that we have the leader of our lives uh, so that we're accurately plugging the message. But but that may not be the case at all, or maybe usually is the case if you're really preaching the truth. In Isaiah's case, if people had responded positively to what he said, the question would have been, what was he doing wrong? <laughs> we ever asked that question? Now, Isaiah knew they weren't going to respond positively. But, but why would we not sometimes ask the question, if people are responding positively, what am I doing wrong? Well, the fact of the matter is you can't tell by the response whether you're doing right or wrong. The response isn't the issue for you. It depends on the soil. depends on the hearts. There are times when 3,000 men converted on the day of Pentecost. That was a pretty good response. There are other days when Noah managed to save his sons and daughters-in-law. You know? So, we have no idea from the response whether the preaching was proper or not. Other thoughts? Okay. 
Uh, look at chapter 7. We're going to at least begin this. Uh, really intriguing chapter. Um, let's uh, get the setting first of all. Chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. And it came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that reason, king of Aram, and Peter, the son of Ramalia, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against them, but could not conquer. When it was reported to the house of David, saying, The Arameans have camped in Ephraim, his heart, and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. Now, I'm going to assume that you guys know a little bit about uh, I can't do that okay. uh, a little bit about Bible geography, and we're going to just pretend we've got a map here on the board. That works just as well as the real one, if you know anything about this. And uh, if you don't, probably the real one won't help. But you've got Judah right here. You've got Judah right here, with Ahaz as its king. You've got a two-nation coalition. Ephraim above it, with Pekah as king, and Aram or Syria over here, um, with Rezin as the king. These two nations, allied together, invade Judah. First invasion, they weren't able to conquer it. But they're camped out in Ephraim, threatening to invade a second time. Now, we think, this is adding some extra biblical evidence and some theorizing. But we think that the point of this two-nation coalition invading Judah trying to conquer it, a little bit of this is biblical, but I'm, I'm adding a little uh, of what seems to be the political situation as well. We think they were trying to overthrow Ahaz's government and put in an anti-Assyrian king so that they could have a three-nation coalition against this great monster Assyria that was threatening to take over that whole area. Ahaz was essentially pro-Assyrian, had refused to join their anti-Assyrian coalition. And so they've invaded once, they're threatening to invade a second time and try to overthrow Ahaz's government. We do, what we know certainly biblically is that they were trying to overthrow Ahaz's government. Some of the other is from extra-biblical sources as to what the reason would be. But I think that's more than likely what the reason was. At any rate, when Judah finds out that the coalition forces are knocking at their doorstep a second time, how do they feel? Afraid. Yes, quite afraid. When the hearts of the people shake as the trees of the forest shake with the wind, <laughs> that's uh, utter terror. <laughs> you know, uh, this is this is really scary. All right, comments and questions about this setting. About what year is this? Yes, this is around 735, if I'm not mistaken, somewhere into there. 735, 732, I don't know, somewhere into there. Yes, um, so, so wouldn't it be a good thing that they're trying to get it has not to be pro-Syria? <clears throat> in one sense, yes, he shouldn't be pro-Syria. On the other hand, he shouldn't be in this political alliance against Assyria either. Really, I think what God would have wanted from Judah was neutrality. You know, what, what, 
Every time Israel and Judah got themselves mixed up in international politics, it was a disaster. <laughs> you know? They had no business doing that. It was against God's will as well. Anything else? Okay. Um, three to nine. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now and meet Ahaz, you and Sheher, Jashub, your son, at the upper end of the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field, and say to him, Take heed and be quiet. Do not fear or be faint-hearted for these two stubs of smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of resident Syria and the son of Remalia. Because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Remalia have plotted evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and trouble it, and let us make a gap in its wall for ourselves, and set a king over them, the son of Tabor. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Within sixty-five years Ephraim shall be broken, so there will not be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Ramalia's son. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. So God sends Isaiah to do what? To King Ahaz, King of Judah. Now, where was he to encounter Mr. Ahaz? Do remember that location. That may seem unduly specific, but we will have occasion to revisit that location, either this year or next. <laughs> there is some significance here, but in the context, probably, Ahaz was checking on the security of his water supply in the face of the threatened invasion, which is probably a sign that he's thinking more about human means of defense than he is about the Lord. Who was uh, Isaiah supposed to take with him? His son, son, whose name was? Yes. And uh, Isaiah's sons have curious names. Uh, that have symbolic meanings. What does Shir Jacob mean? Anybody know? Yes. Is that a threat or a promise? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, um, and the message that Isaiah was to give to Ahaz was what? <clears throat> Relax. Relax. Chill out. <coughs> because. I'll protect you, and because... Yeah, good grief. These two guys have pretty much burned themselves out. They're two stubs of smoldering firebrands. Um, if it's just a stub that's smoldering, will it burn anything? What will it do? It what? Yeah, but what will it do? Make smoke. A lot of smoke gets annoying, gets in your eyes, and you know, cough a lot. But you know, it doesn't burn anything. They're really annoying. They're going to put off a lot of smoke, but but the fire's already out. Don't worry about them. They're nothing. Uh, they're 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 not going to do anything other than annoy you. Uh, their goal, and he he uh, never really uh, 
dignifies Pika by calling his name. He just calls him, you know, Remaliah's son. <laughs> you know, kind of uh, sort of a way of sort of giving him a brush off. And uh, their, their plan was, verse 6, let us go up against Judah and terrorize it and make for ourselves a breach in its walls and set out to Beal's son as king in the midst of it. Now he never even gives us the name of that guy, I think, trying to diminish him. Uh, but, but that was their goal, is to put Tabeel's son, probably an anti-Assyrian puppet, on the throne and knock out Ahaz. That's what they're trying to do. But what does God say about their plan? It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. That ends that. When the Lord says that, when, when human plans challenge God's purposes, guess who wins? <laughs> There's no contest. It's not going to happen. God's the one who decides things like that, so don't worry about it. Relax. It's not going to happen. They're not going to accomplish what, what they were supposed to accomplish. In fact, within another 65 years, Ephraim won't be a people anymore. Now that's kind of a problem for us. Because it was about, well, I don't know, a dozen years when the Assyrians conquered Ephraim. So 65 years? Here's what I think about that. In Ezra 4, there apparently was a later Assyrian king who took away the remnant of the people of Israel, Esarhaddon, in about 670, and relocated them. So yeah, Israel was conquered in 722, but about 670 they were totally dispersed and they quit being a people. That's probably where the 65 years comes in. Um, and so, just don't worry about them. They're not going to last that long anyway. And he says, importantly, at the end of verse 9, if you will not believe, you surely shall not last. This is a, this is a challenge of faith, an issue as to whether or not Ahaz was going to seek his salvation by human works, an alliance with Assyria, or by trust in God and God's promises. Now, Ahaz made the alliance with Assyria. He did not trust in God. And it's easy to look down on him, but what do you do in a crisis? Do you trust God? Or do you try to work things out your own way, even though it's sinful? He's in a crisis. This is a problem. You know, that two-nation coalition had hurt them bad the first time around and they're on their doorstep again. Hey, Assyria, come help! It should have been, Lord will trust you. You said you'd take care of it, do it. But that's not so easy to do when you see the nations getting ready to attack. Comments and questions? Um, just the, the mention again of fire. <coughs> These are only smoldering firebrands. It's not the, the burning spirit and spirit of judgment that's coming. So, it's, but that I suspect that imagery is going to be popping up every now and again. Yeah, it sure does. Yeah, it's a good point. I hadn't thought about this in my connection, but you're right, and it does. Say. I think you put your finger on it when you said when they when they see his army. Us as humans, we want to be able to see our protection. We want to be able to see it physically. We have to see it to believe it. 
And well, if we can't see it, it's almost like well, then it can't be. Yeah. Other comments? Really strong passage. I, I think there's a lot of value in this. All right, uh, 10 to 16. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, Listen now, O house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men, that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. So, what's God offering Ahaz? Assurance. Yes. What sign is he offering him? Yeah. Name your miracle. What do you want me to do to prove that I'll fulfill my promise? That is amazing patience and condescension on the part of the Lord to be willing to deal with an Ahaz like that. He is pulling out all the stops to try to get this king of Judah to trust him. Don't turn to Assyria. Trust me. Name your sign. Any sign. Make it as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. I don't care what you want. You name any sign you want. God really wants him to trust him. And Ahaz says... Oh, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Oh, I know. I wouldn't want to test the Lord like that, asking him to give a sign. Well, sounds like he's a real righteous guy. He's kind of paraphrasing Deuteronomy, but kind of suit his own purpose. You know, it's not testing God to take what he offers you. But they has him kind of trying to turn it his own way so that he doesn't have to see it. Why wouldn't he want to? He's already, he's already made up his mind about what he's going to do. He, he really fits uh, the end of chapter 6 pretty well. He already has his plan. He knows what he's going to do. And the more that Isaiah offers, the more the Lord offers him, the more he turns away towards the spirit. So, what would be the situation of Ahaz if God did give him the sign? Yeah, he you might not have to trust him, but be a lot harder not to. Be a lot excuse. Yes, if God gave him the sign, that could be a real monkey wrench in his plans. <laughs> he would just have more evidence to have to explain away, so that he could do what he wanted to. The last thing Ahaz wanted was proof that he was making the wrong decision. Has there ever been a time you kind of didn't want to know what the Bible said about something? Has there ever been a time you kind of tried to avoid asking a fellow Christian who you thought would tell you the truth for advice because you didn't want to know what they were going to tell you? That's kind of Ahab. He doesn't want a sign. He doesn't want any proof. But it's a monumental piece of hypocrisy.
he pretends that he's just too religious and too spiritual to test God like this. Maloney. It's not his point at all. He doesn't want to know that his way is the wrong way. That's his problem. Any comments through verse 12? So, verse 13, listen now, house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. You don't want a sign? I'm going to give you one. Now, there are occasional passages in Isaiah that I will frankly confess I don't know what they're saying. This is one of them. This is a really debated passage. And there are various ways to look at this. And I am not very convicted about any particular way of looking at it. He says, Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey. At the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. Now, on the one hand, what can you see in that? Jesus. Yeah. If you read Matthew. On the other hand, what do you see in this? Yeah, before this child grows up, these two lands will be forsaken, which doesn't strike you as something he's saying for 700 years later. That is a difficulty. What does it make sense to decide Jesus? I mean, sure, it'd be a sign, but not to Ahaz. He does say, O house of David, maybe the sign's not for Ahaz, but for the house of David. There's ways of getting around about any way you want to look at this. I'm going to suggest something to you, but I don't have much conviction about this interpretation. So, don't, uh, don't take this as law and gospel. But, I think it may be that Isaiah is thinking, first of all, about a woman in his day who would get married and have a child. She was a virgin when he spoke. Um, And during the childhood of that child, those two nations would be carried away into captivity. Um, And his name would be Emmanuel. That God was showing himself to be with the people at that time. But that, as sometimes happens in some of these prophecies, if you really press the language, it kind of goes beyond that. In fact, it kind of doesn't fit that totally. Because God was behind this, and that there's actually a deeper lesson in this for the house of David as a whole. That there was going to be a virgin who was there, a child as a virgin which is perhaps a little better understanding of that phrase, who would be God with us in a very literal sense. 
And that when you really take the words of the prophecy more strongly, this looks forward to another son who would fit this even better. That would be a sign of God's presence with them. And that this son who's kind of vague and sort of has a preliminary fulfillment and an ultimate fulfillment is clarified by chapters like chapter 9 that speak a lot more about a son that's given to us that is more clearly and specifically talking about the Messiah. So I, my preference right now is to take this as having a, an immediate fulfillment in a little less strict sense of the language. And an ultimate fulfillment if you press the language more carefully in Jesus. That's kind of where I'm at right now. But, I don't know. Comments and questions? Yes. Well, but they were destroyed in about a dozen and Ephraim ceased to be a people in 65 years. I think there's a difference between their being, their land being forsaken and them not being a people anymore. Matt? I kind of see it like this, that there's kind of like two parts of it. One is the sign that that God is with his people, that God is there for them. That's kind of through Jesus. There's also this other part that, that in a short length of time, for instance, like the length of time to take a child to learn good and evil is how long it will take these two nations uh, to go from, from from being powerful and not being powerful. And maybe the child isn't born yet, but kind of as a representation of that, uh, in chapter 8, Isaiah has a child that kind of uh, times that out. It's kind of almost like two parts of the prophecy. That's more or less what I think. Yeah. Could it also be that at the time that, if you're looking at it as in the Messiah coming at the time Jesus was born, that Israel and Judah were not nations, that they were that they were collectively Jews, that since they were under Roman rule, the nations basically did not exist. Could that be? It would be Israel and Syria, perhaps. David. Um, looking at this as messianic in the uh, later sense <coughs> kind of both parts of what Ahaz has offered and the as high as heaven and as the shield having Christ coming down from heaven and then you have as the shield in the resurrection and then heaven again in the ascension that's interesting how are your thoughts? <coughs> Teddy I, I think your explanation makes sense to me I mean I think you said something really similar to that in uh, St. Samuel 7, we're talking about Solomon, and you know, we, we obviously see that that's filled partially in Solomon, about the, about the kingdom that we set up, but, but Solomon can't, doesn't fill all of that, and you kind of feel that, that when you really are looking for a more specific, there has to be something later that, that really fulfills that. I, so that makes sense here, where, whether, you know, whoever this child is, okay, yeah, so he grows up, and it's just kind of one of those mundane signs, uh, but, you know, I mean, like someone like Jeremiah, you know, an almond tree. When well, almond tree means God's watching over. You know, just when the sun's when the sun's old enough, He will. That's a sign to you that the, the nations are gone. Oh yeah, He's already eating. You know, He's young. The nations are gone. Uh, but then it just means something more later. And Psalm 16, with the prophecy of Jesus' resurrection, I think initially 
in the context was to David that God would not just abandon his soul in Sheol, but if you press the language both Paul and Peter say, it could only refer to the resurrection of Christ. Yeah, I think there's a lot like that, where there's a preliminary fulfillment, and then there's an ultimate fulfillment in Christ that fits better the more exacting language of the passages. This is a definitely a controversial passage, and uh, for good reason. It is more difficult. The overall context, though, is one of trust in God. We can see that. Is there anything else you want to say through verse 16 at the moment? All right, then, I want you to have a break for about uh, 10 or 15 minutes, 15 maybe, and we'll do one more session. <coughs>